I'm Neil Sharp, partner of Penn Partnership and your host for this episode of The Rise of the Customer. If you work in a large organization, you've probably heard the word agile banded around a fair bit over the last few years. Whether it's to do with change management or marketing, you might be forgiven for wondering whether the world of management has gone mad and created yet another language all of its own, especially when you hear phrases such as scrums, epics and sprints churned out alongside the word agile. If you can get past the language, though, there are actually some really interesting things happening as organizations adopt new agile ways of working. Agile marketing in particular is definitely coming of age, and some of the capabilities offered by digital technology and new digital communication channels allow marketers to do stuff nowadays that I could have only dreamt of when I had a career in marketing. In order to learn more about it, I invited Rachel Chapman to join me. Rachel knows more about agile marketing than pretty much anyone else I know. She started her career on the counter of Abbey National, then a UK bank, getting first-hand experience of delivering service. She tells me that she only intended to stay a few months as part of a gap year, but 29 years later, she was still there, including through the transition from Abbey National to Santander. Rachel held a variety of different customer experience and marketing positions, and her biggest claim to fame is developing and delivering the Bank of Anton Deck advertising strategy, which she says has probably been the most successful and definitely the most fun thing she's done in her career. Also, whilst in that role, Rachel oversaw the transformation of the marketing department, which culminated in equipping the organisation with the capabilities and tools and the mindsets to transform fully into an agile marketing organisation. Rachel left Santander in 2019. She became the director of her own marketing consultancy business and now spends her days helping marketing teams become more effective, efficient and adaptable, working with them on marketing strategies, organisational design and generally becoming more agile in what they do. She's an accredited Agile instructor. She runs accredited online courses in agility in marketing. And she also co-founded the Marketing Agility Meetup Group, which runs monthly events and now has over 600 members. So if you want to find out what Agile marketing is all about and what it means in practice, settle in and let's listen to a real expert. Rachel, first of all, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me. As I said in the introduction, you're a marketing consultant and an agile marketing expert. And I know that you specialize in making marketing teams more effective, efficient and adaptable. And I also know that prior to going it alone, you held senior positions in Santander and the former incarnation of that business, Abbey National. So perhaps before we start, could we sort of kick off by hearing a bit about your story in your own words um, in terms of your career path and how you've ended up doing what you do today? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Neil. And uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So yes, I had a, I've got a bit of an unusual career path these days, I think, in that I, uh, I finished A-levels and uh, decided to take a year out from university, decided to get a job to earn a bit of money, got a job on the counter at Abbey National, as it was then. I was only planning to stay a few months. And then 29 years later, I was, <laughs> I was still there, which is very unusual. So I was uh, lucky enough to be able to get onto their graduate trainee scheme without having a degree. At those, in those days, you could do that. You know, you could apply and uh, if you worked there and get on there. So yeah, so I, I spent uh, my formative years in branches. So it gave me a really, really good first-hand view of, of, of customer service and uh, the customer experience. Worked my way up from being on the counter through to managing uh, many branches in the northwest of England up to some of the biggest branches up there like Manchester Piccadilly. Then I decided it was time to move to head office. 
again, a bit different, I think, in those days. This was in the 90s. Uh, I just phoned up somebody I knew in head office and said, oh, thinking of moving to head office, what do you reckon? And he said, oh, yeah, let me phone my boss, you know. So then, yeah, pop down to Milton Keynes from Manchester. We'll have a chat. And then the next day, he phoned up and said, yeah, great. When can you start? Moved to head office. I didn't even really know what job I was moving into. <laughs> um, but it was a, a support role for the retail sales team. So I was supporting them in developing things like their team incentive schemes and some of the projects. Then at that point, probably a little bit later than that, I applied to get on one of these fast track graduate trainee schemes that fast track you to be a, a, a director, you know, director level. And again, at that time in the 90s, the approach then was to move people around different departments. So you'd have sort of six to 12 months in different departments. So I moved all over the place from I spent some time in HR, some time in retail e-commerce, which back then was very, very new, you know, developing online application forms, which was uh, interesting. Um, and then I was ended up in Customer Insights. And when the music stopped, which was when Santander took over because they disbanded the Abbey National Graduate Scheme, which was in 2004 or the, the the exec scheme, I happened to be in customer insight in marketing. And I kind of uh, not looked back since then. And since then, I've been, I've been working in marketing. So that was, yeah, nearly 20 years ago now. So then, yeah, I, I did lots of different roles in marketing. I uh, ran the B2B marketing team, uh, which was almost like being in a startup business because Santander B2B offering in the UK was absolutely tiny and it was run as a completely sort of separate, almost like a subsidiary of Santander. So that was really exciting times when we were developing the B2B offering and, and delivering the marketing for, for all of those things. Then they merged the B2B and B2C marketing team. So then I was running the B2B and B2C marketing communications team for Santander. Um, doing all sorts of exciting things like launching the Bank of Anton Deck, which is probably uh, the most successful and certainly the most fun thing I've ever done in my career. Working with Anton Deck was uh, was great. And also some of the other celebs we partnered with, like Jessica Ennis-Hill, who was just the most lovely person on the planet. Anton Deck were great too. And also implementing, we implemented, whilst I was in those final stages of my time at Santander, we implemented agile marketing, which we're going to talk about a bit later on. So I won't say much about that yet. Mm -hmm. Then the opportunity came 18 months ago for me to move on and I grabbed it with both hands I'd loved my time there it was great but it was you know it was time time to move I felt like I'd kind of done all the jobs I wanted to do there and done what I could do many people would come after me and, and, and do better things so yeah so I left and uh, became a marketing consultant so that was um, December 2019 and since then, I've sort of developed my offering and I've started working mainly with large companies to, as you said, help them become more effective, efficient and adaptable. And interestingly, mainly, certainly since people are getting back on their feet after the initial COVID lockdown, mainly helping them to implement agile marketing to transform their marketing functions. Wow. Blimey. Okay. So you've got an absolute ton of practitioner experience, which I'm, I'm hoping we can really dig into and, and draw out some stuff. Obviously, the theme of this is all about customer experience and we've called it the rise of the customer for an obvious reason. But um, I really want to try and understand as a marketer myself, because that was my sort of career path previously, I, I got formally trained and kind of similar career path, but in a slightly different type of organization in terms of the types of things that I did. But I mean, from my perspective, once you get underneath the jargon and you sort of focus on the intent, 
there seem to me to be a lot of similarities between the discipline of marketing and customer experience. I mean, some of the terms have almost become a little bit interchangeable over the years. And I wonder if we can sort of talk about the evolution of marketing a little bit. You know, I see a lot of things that haven't really changed, but at the same time, there's been quite a big shift in the way about we actually go about doing it. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I really agree that fundamentally things things are the same. So, you know, in a nutshell, marketing is about understanding your customers, which is absolutely where some of the links to customer experience comes in, really identifying what is of value to them and then creating, communicating and delivering it. So none of that's changed. All of that, I would say, is exactly the same. But I think the way that marketeers now have to go about their craft is, is probably changed almost beyond recognition and very much in, in line with the name of this podcast, you know, The Rise of the Customer. I've got a little a little story that I like, actually, from a book called The Age of Agile, which was written by Stephen Denning. And his the second chapter is called The Law of the Customer, where he talks about this in quite a lot of detail. It's a great book, actually. I would, really would recommend it. Mm. And he tells the story of uh, Copernicus and links it to, uh, to, to the modern day and the law of the customer. So his story, the little story of Copernicus is in 1539, I believe, excuse me, Nicholas Copernicus published his paper first that proposed the Earth revolved around the sun, whereas previously everybody thought it was the other way around. So it was absolutely radical, this paper, and I think people thought he was mad. But interestingly, the line of this story goes, the powers that be of the time, who were the Roman Catholic Church, who ran everything, applauded the idea they didn't think it through. So they didn't think through that this apparently mathematical theory had massive implications for religion, which does take a bit of thinking about, but it completely eventually undermined the plausibility of the divine rights of the Roman Catholic Church, which had God at the centre of the universe, earth at the centre of the universe, and the priests on earth were there to implement his rules. And actually, the understanding that earth wasn't at the centre of the universe basically knocked that theory and that practice completely. But so it took them ages to realise this. And I think it was about 80 years later, they banned this theory from being published. But it was kind of too late by then. And the church never had the same authority again. So what has that got to do with marketing or, or customers? <laughs> do tell. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's a bit of a stretch, but I quite like it. So Stephen Denning then outlines the equivalent transformation today in the way that firms understand and interact with the world, which he calls the law of the customer. So he says in the fairly recent past, the purpose of a firm was to make money. And the mindset was, we make it, you take it. You know, you think of the 80s when the boardroom put shareholder value absolutely the heart of their business and their remuneration. Basically, profit was the only goal that anybody recognised. And so, therefore, the firm was in the centre and the customer had to revolve around the firm like it or not. But now so many forces have combined to massively shift the power to the customer. So now the customer is in the centre of the universe and the firm has to appreciate that they are no longer in charge and they have to really think about, you know, what is it that our customer wants? And clearly there are so many things that have driven that shift to the law of the customer, but primarily it's the shift to digital you know, the, the absolute explosion in, you know, in online. So, and just sort of coming back to, to Mark, you know, bringing it back a bit to marketing and your question about what's changed. This has changed marketing really beyond all recognition. So, you know, thinking about inventions and the pace of change, I was looking at some stats the other day that said the telephone took 70 years to reach 50 million users. 
So not surprising, really. Facebook took three and a half years to reach 50 million users. And then you get some new games like I think maybe the latest Angry Birds game or something took 35 days to reach 50 million users. I mean, the crazy increased pace of change of digital adoption is transforming everything, which, you know, everybody knows. But then just bringing it back to marketing, apparently Google release about 14 changes a day to their algorithm. So, you know, traditional marketeers who want their brand to be front of mind. So when somebody searches for, you know, best fixed rate mortgages on Google, their brand comes top. You know, Google are changing the algorithm 14 times a day. How can your marketing plan possibly keep up with that, either from a search engine optimization or a pay-per-click? So that means the disciplines that marketers need and the way to keep up with the pace of change is, is completely different. So that's kind of one side of the shift to digital. But the other side of it really is about the power that the customer has in terms of the level of online information there is about the different businesses. Yeah. So, you know, I think if any brand puts in their brand name and reviews, I defy anybody not to win. So the other day I searched for Santander reviews online just to see what it said. And I mean, it was unbelievable the number of sites that came up, you know, Trustpilot, Reviews.io, Smart Money People, Glassdoor, Choose Wisely, you know, that kind of information that's out there for customers that cannot be controlled by the company anymore, yep. just absolutely puts all the power with the customer. Hence the title of this podcast. <laughs> exactly. I'm glad yeah. to be able to reinforce that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so to, to, to properly come back to your question about what's changed in marketing, I guess when I first started in marketing over 20 years ago, you had a really limited number of ways to gain insight into your consumer, which were pretty much quantitative surveys and qualitative focus groups, and then a really limited number of channels to communicate with them. So, you know, you had above the line, as we called it then, TV, radio, out of home, and below the line, if you had a customer database, so direct mail, catalogs, maybe, remember those? <laughs> and uh, trade shows, maybe, if you're busy. <laughs> but clearly, you know, A, the ability to capture insight has absolutely exploded with the, the data available, and B, the number of channels that marketers have to understand, you know, firstly, email and website, bringing with it pay-per-click, search engine optimization, then digital display advertising, social media with new channels coming on all the time, and a vast array of MarTech tools that companies have to have to help them understand all this data. So by the time I left Santander, I kind of needed to be best mates with IT to help me into implement customer database analytics, Marcom's yeah. delivery engines, and I needed to manage and at least vaguely understand some of these mathematical modeling techniques like econometrics and manage experts who could interpret the data to determine what's the return on investment of marketing and how do we best invest our budget to deliver better results. So I think the skill sets that marketers needed have, have radically changed. But I guess at least it stopped people calling marketing the colouring in department. Pretty much. <laughs> well, absolutely. And I've done my fair share of colouring in, certainly in the late 80s, early 90s when I was first doing it. But no, fa fascinating set of thoughts there. And I, you know, I, I think what I'm most struck by is not only the, the information that's available to the consumer and the power that that gives them, but also the measurability of everything that we do in that space nowadays so you you know you really can see the impact that you've had quickly you know i certainly remember in my formative years of marketing you know we used to create products and brochures and things and then push them out through sales forces and 
you probably wouldn't know for a year whether you'd actually hit the spot or not because you'd you know you'd have a very long delay as things started to get going and so it was incredibly difficult to uh, to drive the marketing engine effectively in those days so um, a massive piece there and, and a really interesting insight about best friends of IT as well I love that as a as a parody because it's certainly not the uh, traditional space for the marketeer to be in so can we I mean just to really bring this to life and and you know don't share things you can't share, but obviously, I just love to dig into your long experience and tenure at Santander. And um, I mean, I I used to deal with Abbey National in the early '90s, and uh, I remember that as a brand very clearly. And and you know, such a, a big, strong high street brand. Obviously, that got replaced by Santander, which at the time was quite controversial. And you know, it almost seems like it was it was never the case that it wasn't Santander. But given your long tenure there, I mean. What do the differences feel like in terms of the sort of old and new organization in terms of how they engage with customers, generally approach both marketing and customer experience? Yeah, interesting, really. Very, very different. I think thinking back to Abbey National, although it actually was a bank when I joined in 1990, it had just converted from being a building society. And there was very much, even right through to where Santander took over, I would say what you might call a building society mentality, which was very collaborative. Everybody was very respectful. I mean, this may not be true of building societies today, but it certainly was in the 90s where there were loads of committees and chains of command and decisions were made very collaboratively, which I guess means that things took time. And yeah, things did take a long time. And I think in terms of the customer as I mentioned, the last role I had before Santander took over was I, I headed up the customer insight team at Abbey National. And I'd say, although the company really liked to think it was really customer centric, and we spent a lot of money on research back then, a lot of money. I think the reality was that much of what we did was either very high level brand surveys, which gave loads of indication as to where the brand was heading, but realistically, not that much insight on actually what should we do about it. Or to be really honest, a fair bit of post-rationalization type focus groups where, you know, we so the product team would have come up with these new products and put them in front of customers and somehow managed to justify launching them really, whatever, <laughs> whatever the focus group said, because some people like them. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's slightly painting a bit of a negative picture. But really, when I think back, it was quite like that because it was almost some of it was doing customer research and insight more for the sake of it, really. Mm. And I think a lot of companies were like that back then. Then Santander came in in 2004 and they just went through everything like an absolute whirlwind. I remember when they first took over, the first thing the CEO said was, oh, you know, Santander will be at arm's length. They're a parent company. You know, they'll set high level targets and then let, let the UK get on with it, you know, as long as we're hitting our targets. And like two months later, pretty much all the executive management had been replaced. <laughs> and we had consultants and people from Santander swarming all over everything. Things. So that was quite funny, really. And I suppose at a micro level, from my perspective, the first thing that they did was cut my customer insight budget by two thirds, which at the time I was horrified by. I just thought, what is this company doing? They don't understand the customer. They don't get it. But I realized a few months later that actually we'd really been throwing money away on insight. We'd been either researching stuff that we knew already and so the answer wasn't a surprise to us mm-hmm. or we were researching stuff and paying money for things that we didn't need because we could have got elsewhere by looking mm-hmm. at what competitors were doing or by by looking at other insight sources available so i think although at the time i would have said santander were kind of less focused and engaged with customers than abbey national i think as i came to realize over the course of a few months or years 
they were much, much smarter about it. And they really were focused on the customer, but they weren't going to waste a fortune, you know, finding out things that weren't really actionable or we didn't really need to know. I guess the other big sort of another manifestation of that change, I suppose, was trying to get a single view of the customer, which was kind of the holy grail at the time Santander came in or a bit before that. So Abbey National had been trying to implement this data lake and CRM systems to get a single view of the customer for, you know, five years or so. And just honestly, looking back, hadn't really got anywhere. (laughs) You know, it was one of those projects from hell. I can't remember the name of the system then, but it was a very well-known system they were trying to implement. I probably shouldn't mention it anyway. No, 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 don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) So then Santander came over and it was a top priority for them to implement a single view of the customer, which was massively important and managed to do it with, to be honest, a fair bit of pain but managed to implement pretty much a single view of the customer in a couple of years. And then that was even during the implementation of takeover of Bradford and Bingley and Alliance and Leicester as well, which obviously made it immensely more complicated. You know, you're trying to merge three brands, probably more because there were sub brands of theirs trying to get the single view of the customer. So yeah, a real focus on these are the strategic priorities of the bank and we're going to deliver this. And if there's massive pain on the way, well, we'll just have to get through it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And is that does that typify? I know that when you and I have spoken previously, you talk on talked about a sort of I think you called it a get on with it approach to the customer. What was that? I mean, what, what kind of manifestations were that both for customers and employees when you were working it? Yeah, it's a good question, and and you know I think it's important to remember this is kind of fifteen years ago when I when I talk about some of this stuff, and I do yeah. think it would be very different now. But I think in the short term, when Santander were getting on with implementing a single view of the customer, for a small number of customers, it was a nightmare because things went wrong. You know, they occasionally they merged customer records or the, or customer records were lost or, you know, something happened across households. So a father and a son's data got changed. It was a tiny proportion, but of course, dealing with the fallout of that for the individuals was terrible. You know, these poor people whose bank records weren't right or whatever. And equally for the employees who had to handle these complaints, it was a really, really difficult time. But in the longer term, I really think for again for both customers and employees there were huge long term benefits so you know from a customer perspective it enabled the customer to be treated as a as a customer not a product so you know previously if I had a mortgage and a current account and a credit card and a savings account with Santander I was treated as four different people because there was no system that told them that I was one person. So I couldn't see all my products on online banking. I'd get four different sets of communication if something was changing. So, you know, from a customer perspective, that kind of strategic focus on some of those things like having a single view of the customer in the longer term was really, really helpful. I think now if, if Santander was doing this now, and bringing sort of bringing in a bit of agile thinking, there would be much more of an attempt to look at smaller testing and learning before the Big Bang implementation. So, uh, and and probably even more important, a sort of better approach to dealing with the fallout from complaints, which I think is one of the most critical things a company can do from a customer experience perspective is when something goes wrong, handle it incredibly effectively and well. 
so I think I think if if it was happening now, then there would be more of a focus on that, and that would have made it even better in the short term for the customer. But I genuinely think the approach of having a strategic goal, aligning everybody behind it, and getting on with it and delivering it means a better customer experience in the yeah. longer term. Yeah, yeah, and probably a better employee experience as well. Certainly, um, having been involved over the many many years in long, long drawn out projects, and I mean, I remember my first single view of the customer project in a, an organisation I won't name, but yeah, I think it took about seven years to actually f- complete the job. I mean, uh, to be fair, they did stick with it because they could see the strategic importance of having it. So, but yeah, <laughs> it took a while. So it's quite impressive to have done it that quickly in Santander. I know, I hundred percent agree. I'd say most Santander employees are really proud to work for a forward thinking, cutting edge bank who gets stuff done. Yeah, and and sort of can can handle and and cope with some of the pressures that that brings, but in a positive way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, what I've taken from that is, you know, speed and agility with a small A, before we get on to Agile with a big A, very important for not only driving progress quickly and making it feel like a vibrant place to work, but actually you start to get downstream benefits from a customer point of view quickly because you get the cumulative effect of all of these improvements hitting you on a regular basis. And I can I can certainly attest to that from my experience as well. So, Great stuff, thanks, Rachel. And okay, let's let's step into agile then. I'm sure you're bursting to uh, to talk about agile because it's your specialist subject, I guess. If we were a mastermind, I'm sure you'd you'd pick that amongst probably Pecernicus and another um, amazing parables that you uh, uh, have come up with. But I, I know it's a subject you're passionate about. So can you just start off because I'm sure some people listening to this are thinking, I'm not really sure I know what she's talking about here. What is agile marketing? So can you sort of start off by defining it? What is what is agile marketing? Yeah, sure. So I I often start this question by saying it's a bit of a sad indictment to marketers as professionals. We haven't really managed to come up with a really cool short definition, um, but I've never seen one. And even even the, my favourite agile marketing master himself, Jim Ewell, who is one of the people who wrote the original marketing manifesto, his definition pretty much runs to a full page of PowerPoint. So, um, so here's my best attempt and how I've started to define it over the years. So I've got a bit of a what and a how. So okay. what does agile marketing do? Well, agile marketing enables brands to deliver more effective, efficient and adaptable marketing. That's the purpose, most companies' purpose of implementing agile marketing. So probably more importantly, how how does it do that? Mm. So it does that through bringing together customer-focused collaborative teams who have clear, measurable goals, deliver many rapid iterations and small experiments and use testing and data to make decisions. So I guess there's sort of four things there. Customer focus and collaboration is one. Clear and measurable goals is two. Delivering rapid iterations and small experiments is three. And using data to make decisions is four. They're kind of the four components, I suppose, of agile marketing. And presumably, when you're implementing agile marketing, um, if indeed that's a a correct way of describing it, implementing it, I guess you are implementing it as a a way of, of working. Presumably, that comes with a whole bunch of mindset and cultural shifts because it it feels like a very different way of working from a a traditional marketing approach yeah absolutely and my my normal approach depending on where companies are to helping them implement agile marketing is to talk firstly about being agile and then secondly about doing agile because i think if companies start with doing agile that's where sometimes it goes wrong because they implement all these new processes but actually maybe they don't know why they're doing it and they haven't changed 
So when I talk about being agile, I talk about four mindset shifts that most companies need to make in order to embrace agile with a capital A. Mm. So the first one is outcomes over outputs. And I talk endlessly about outcomes. And I think sometimes people think agile is no focus, no structure. It's a bit like the Wild West. But actually, for it to work, it's kind of the polar opposite. And I've mentioned a few times about Mm. Santander having really clear strategic goals. And to me, that enables a lot of other things, you know, to really have clear a clear north star that everybody's aligned to i mean it doesn't have to be one because big companies often have more than one strategic priority but ideally not too many and be really measured so so what's the outcome i'm looking for and therefore the teams really understand what's the focus and what am i striving for so outcomes over outputs is the first the second is continuous improvements so always looking at how can i improve what i'm doing how can I get to value faster? How can I test and learn to make things better? How can I not spend four months developing an enormous marketing campaign that I've spent millions of pounds on and then realize that it's not right? So how can I do small things to really test and learn? So that's the second continuous improvements. The third is customer focus. So really genuinely understanding how what everything I do is going to improve and impact positively the customer. And then the fourth, which many leadership elements of the organization find hardest, is decentralized decisions. So often the thing that delays companies and means things take time is the bottleneck of senior management having to make all sorts of decisions. And that also stops senior management having the time to to think about the strategy and develop the strategic priorities. And this really links back to outcomes over outputs. So if the senior leadership can set the North Star, be crystal clear on the outcomes they're looking for and set the direction, then the tactical decisions can be decentralized to the local team so that they can then decide they're closest to the customer, they're closest to the data, what are the right tactics we should employ in order to deliver to the outcomes that we've all agreed to the priority. So they're the four mindset shifts that that Mm. organizations really need. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. Very clear. And obviously, uh, customer sitting front and center of that. So it is an incredibly customer-centric way of doing business, let alone doing marketing per se. And so if you are a customer on the receiving end of this, what, what would you notice if indeed, would you notice anything? I mean, what, what, what are the manifestations of that on the, in the outside world in terms of when you're actually doing it? Yeah, interesting question. And I think the sort of continuous improvement mindset and using data to make decisions here really does allow companies to drive improvements that are for the benefit of the customer and get a minimum viable product out there much more quickly that they can then iterate in line with the customer. I was trying to think of a really good example of this, and I have got some marketing examples, but probably a a better initial example to use and probably one many of us are very familiar with is Microsoft Teams and how Microsoft Teams have iterated and developed for the benefit of us as their customers. You know, so they started, I don't know how many years ago now with with OneDrive, which was basically SharePoint. And then they added on the front end interface that most of us use now, which is, you know, grow helps meetings capacity and helps you to find the files and share them and work on them together, which is great. 
And then since COVID, they obviously saw a huge opportunity. And I'm sure they did a lot of focus on what their customers wanted and what the competition were offering equally as importance. And, you know, in the last year, well, maybe six months, I feel like every time I log into Teams, they've added something else that wasn't there before. So, you know, they clearly needed to compete with Zoom. So they've added in backgrounds that zoom had and breakout rooms and i think their breakout room functionality is much better than zoom actually so they've been able to to iterate historically you know without that kind of agile approach you know maybe maybe microsoft would have done one or two releases a year but now i'm i reckon they're releasing new things every week which i'm sure is a result of this agile focus and for us as customers it's massively benefited us to have this great capability that that now, well, personally, I think it's improved beyond recognition, Microsoft Teams, over the last year. Yeah, no, it's a great example. And goodness me, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, in, in some of my early career days when we used to issue new quotation systems, whether they're on new products, we used to have to issue a series of floppy disks that used to go out um if five and a quarter inch ones as well like that's how long ago we're talking about that needed about 10 disks to be loaded up and lots of problems doing it you had to rely on people who didn't have any it skills whatsoever to try and navigate their way through it and so digital again and another massive enabler of that because i guess you just couldn't do this without the digital capabilities that we see now so really interesting and let me just play devil's advocate for a minute so if if i'm an early adopter then of a product and you're a marketer and you want to get a minimum viable product an mvp out to me presumably then i'm a bit of a guinea pig and i'm although i'm benefiting from the the early adoption of that product i guess to a certain extent i'm i'm going to be using an inferior version of what ultimately will come out so i'm getting it early but i'm getting a poorer version and and trading off my feedback i guess for the development of the product and almost participating i mean does that does that resonate because it feels a little bit i'm not going to say unfair because early adopters don't look at it that way they they they'll try anything new but it kind of in perhaps in the old days you know you would have got a polished product um, straight away ultimately because you might have delayed issuing it is that is that a fair comment yeah i think that's a very very fair comment and and i i agree with you and i I guess you know you and i neil are a similar age and we're you know sort of baby boomer or or maybe maybe uh maybe gen x um generation and that's definitely our mindset and i still have that mindset to some extent you know when i want to use something i want it to work perfectly but interestingly from the research that, that I've seen and the evidence, a lot of the newer generations, the early adopters, they love getting involved in mm. beta. And I think the key for companies is to be really honest with their customers and say, you know, this is a beta. This isn't perfect. We'd love you. If you want to use it, we'd love you to use it. We'd love to get your feedback. And and the people who sign up for that kind of thing actually love being involved in the development. I think Monzo Bank's a great example of that where, you know, Monzo really started, uh, my understanding is I'm not close to it, but they, they launched with some really, really basic stuff. But the way they did it and their tone of voice and the way they engaged their early adopters and the way that the early adopters felt they were shaping things was incredibly successful for them. And the people involved in it just loved it. So I think people self-select really to be involved in those kinds of things, the kind of people who who like doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's very customer centric. Get that. It's agile with a small a um, as well as being called agile. I.e., you're, you're doing things quickly, you're testing and learning, you're improving, you start with something, you build on it. So I, I kind of want to just try and build up the picture for people that aren't familiar with this. And I can see immediately how that really does benefit 
customer experience because if you're you're innovating customer experience and marketing in that way you know you're you're gradually building based on the needs of customers i mean that's the kind of primary thing that that i'm taking from this is it's it's constantly driven by feedback and it's di- driven by data as well data data driven decisions so and one of the things i i try and do on this podcast is just get into the kind of real practical stuff so if we could just dig down another layer still if we may and sort of say you know so when you're doing this what are the practical differences between a traditional approach to marketing and agile i mean what kind of cycles do you go through what are you actually doing on the ground when you're you're going through an agile marketing project or an exercise of some kind what does it feel like so let's take an example maybe of you know most most banks and um, investment companies still have a real focus on savings and investments at the end of the tax year. So because that's when most customers are thinking about saving, maximizing their ISA allowances and so on. So let's let's take an example of as we used to call it at Santander, the cross-tax year campaign. So we would be effectively trying to sell as many savings and investments products as possible. So I guess historically in traditional marketing, you'd start planning for that in December because that started in March. So you'd have a kind of three to four month window where you would agree agree your priorities, agree the objectives, try and set some targets. Although to be honest, in December, it was practically impossible to set what the targets would be in March because you didn't know what the markets were going to be. You didn't know what interest rates were going to be, but you'd have your best guess. And then you'd spend January and February developing the campaign as Marcoms. You'd develop potentially a TV ad, a radio ad, some social ads, some digital ads, some branch posters, and then on the whatever date in March, let's say the you know fifth of March, you'd go, well, hey, here's our big campaign. Customers come and buy our our wonderful savings and investment products, and it would be a big bang. You'd have spent months and a lot of money developing this campaign. So the turning that on its head from an agile perspective, yes, you would still probably start planning in January, but instead of developing everything together and launching it all in one go. You might try and start small. So you might have a creative idea or a number of creative ideas, say three or four different creative ideas that would be you believe might be best. And you'd test them. So you might develop a small social ad or something that was quite easy to get the data from. And and maybe you have three or four different iterations. You could test different creative approaches and put them out there. And the the way you'd get the data back would probably be two different types. You'd probably actually put the real ads out there and see what the click-through rates were and see what traffic it drove from the website through to applications. Because obviously, people are still buying savings and investments outside that period. It's just yeah. you need to get it perfect across March and April. And you might actually run some customer focus groups. You know, I still believe there's real relevance in some of the more traditional customer insight gathering methodologies. So you might put these different adverts in front of a focus group and say, what do you think of them? You know, which do you like? Which of these resonates with you? And there's some really amazing, fairly new tools out there as well to help you analyze Marcoms. So there's a, there's many companies that do it, but there, there's a company called System One that you can test TV ads in advance of a launch. So they have a panel and the people on the panel watch the TV ad and they assess where in the ad they're engaged versus they lose interest they say where they know what the brand is that this advert is for so if they don't say you know if they they don't have a branding if they don't know who the brand is ever or until the end then you probably it's not going to be so successful and they've got vast quantities of data that that say where the engagement in the ad should be to make it most successful so I think the agile way would be to use as many different sources of customer insight as possible to test and learn 
you know, to test a social ad, does this creative work better than that? Does this subject line work better than that? Does this image work better than that? And to test the ad, you know, so are we building excitement at the right place? Is the music resonating? Do people know it's for Santander before you actually launch? So you probably still do have a big campaign launch on the 5th of March, but before then you've tested, you've learned and you've really honed it. So it's significantly more likely to perform well than if you'd done none of that right right okay and then presumably come the 5th of march or the 6th of march or 7th of march presumably the, the testing never stops you're constantly adjusting and adapting because of the feedback is that right yeah absolutely 100 percent. so as soon as it goes live you hopefully uh, have got a cross-functional team which includes an analyst and the analyst job is exactly that to monitor the data to measure what's going on to also you know and also monitor some of the other things available like social sentiment you know what are people saying about mm. it i mean they might be saying nothing because it's not the most exciting subject in the world you know savings and investments but if there's any social sentiments out there and absolutely analyzing the data so how how are my click-through rates my view-through rates my website dwell time how are they comparing to the norms that i've got and that there's some really fascinating ai technology out there as well again there's probably many companies but there's a company called posado that i've worked with who they have an ai generation engine which takes it looks at the adverts and your target market and it recommends let's say eight different subject lines for an email or a social ad and eight different images. And then you put all of those out there and you test which one, you know, so you maybe narrow it down to two and you keep testing. So that would definitely go on throughout the campaign. And what does a cycle look like, a a sort of typical length? Are you you talking sort of like weekly rhythm to uh, the development of the campaign and then the actual tweaking as you go? Or is it is it faster than that or slower? I mean, what, what does it sort of feel like in practice? So I think in terms of agile processes, many companies do use the sprint methodology, not all of them, because there are different ways to do agile. That's just one of the one of the doing agiles. Yeah. And most marketing teams would probably run sprints between two and three weeks. Okay. So at the beginning of the two or three week period, you as a cross-functional team would agree the sprint goal. And then you'd, you'd all agree what you were going to deliver in that period. And so I suppose if the campaign was live, then you would be iterating daily. You know, you would be looking at the data daily and the analyst job would potentially be to, you know, to give the Marcoms people the data at a certain time every day for them to work out what to do. But then the sprint goal might be to increase the click through rate of this advert from x percent to y percent so that might right. be the spring goal and then everybody in the team would work to, to, working to try and do that okay yeah okay so focused on a mini goal yeah 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 exactly and and before things had launched you know you might have subtly different sprint goals i mean you know some some of this stuff in reality does still have to be a bit waterfall you know if you have to arrange a shoot for example to mm. develop new assets then you have to set a shoot date for a certain date and then the sprints might be planning towards that shoot date. So what do we need to do in this two-week period to make sure we're ready for this shoot when it happens? Yeah, okay. So you've got some big set-piece stuff going on in there as well. So, okay, I mean, that in old currency, that feels a bit like a good old-fashioned A-B split, but on steroids insofar as you, you're, you're just constantly testing different approaches to things to try and achieve certain specific goals. It's just so happens now that you've got a an array of different tools at your fingertips and this cross-functional discipline piece, I'm, I'm sort of picking up on the importance of having a group of people looking at this from different angles to really try and get you that holistic understanding of, of what you're achieving and what needs to be tweaked. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We haven't haven't talked a lot about cross-functional teams, but certainly where I've seen it be most successful is where you have a team that has everybody in it who can deliver these things we're talking about end-to-end. So you have somebody who can do the creative, somebody who can write the content, somebody who can update the website, somebody who can deploy emails, somebody who's a customer journey mapping expert, so they can remap the journeys or come up with recommendations on how to improve those things, and then the analyst and, and so on. And probably... Maybe Maybe part time, but but the people who sign things off. So somebody from compliance, when you're in a bank, for example, would sit on the squad. You know, maybe not full time, as I say, but at the key moments when things need signing off, mm. instead of sending something out on circulation, as we uh, as we used to call it, you send it out on circulation. You give people three working days. They all send their comments back. Then it takes you a working day to decipher because a lot of them disagree with each other. Then you send it out again, and then it comes mm. back. You know, you can easily talk about two weeks to get sign yep. off. Whereas in a truly agile team, everybody gets together in a room and you get it signed off within a couple of hours. Because yeah. everybody has the conversation and you iterate and you update it and then it's good to go. And hence your point about distributed decision making as well being an important part of that because you're going to have to have people in the room who have got the empowered authority, uh, if I can call it that, to actually make a decision and, and not rely upon their own mini subcommittee to go off and have a think about it. So interesting. Very good. Thank you. Um, and maybe we could just use your, your point there about multidisciplinary teams just to sort of pivot into you know what it what it feels like when I know we've talked a bit about cultural change but you know we've got many clients at Penn who are at varying stages of adoption of agile not just in marketing but in project management and, and other aspects of their business and in practice you know it's it's quite interesting, you know. They, they they experience different things depending on how I go about doing it. I mean, what what do you see happening when you start to see organisations trying to transition into the mindsets, the four mindsets that you've talked about? What are the implications from an organisation and how you set things up? Is is it fundamentally different um, in terms of organisational structure, and how does it feel? Yeah, I think uh, I mean, as you would expect, different organisations go about it different ways. Certainly, in successful organisations. Well, I'd say in successful organizations, the change both starts from the top and the bottom. So you've got the leaders at the top who genuinely believe that this is the right thing to do, or at least one. You know, sometimes you're not going to get everybody's hearts and minds to start with. But ultimately, the leaders really have to change their behavior, which you know, is undoing decades of management theory about how you manage and lead teams, which is, you know, it's really tough. And I, 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 often, I often start with organizations with the leaders to, to help make sure they've got a clear aim. So why are we implementing agile marketing? Is it all about trying to do stuff quicker? Well, I really hope not, because that's not a great aim. It should be more something around getting to value faster. So there's a speed element, but you've got to balance it with the value. And then really, really critically setting those clear goals and priorities. I, I love the OKRs framework, the objectives and key results framework. I think it's fascinating how many marketing departments don't really have measurable goals at the top. And I think this is something that leaders, if they're going to be successful in implementing Agile, really have to embrace. So, Mm. you know, for example, you might see a goal, a marketing goal, which is promote the brand to help grow customer lifetime value. Well, that's all very nice, but but what does that really mean? Mm, <laughs> you know, mm. if I'm in a cross-functional team, I'm not sure how that's going to help empower me to really make a decision about what I should do. Yeah. So I help the leaders to rewrite those objectives to be smart. So so for example, 
a smart objective might be increase the percentage of our customers who recommend our app from X to Y by the end of the year. So timely, specific, it's got a number in there, you know, it's customer focused. So then the key results for that quarter, so the objective will be long term, that's what we want to achieve in the year, then the key results are short term and demonstrate how to get to that. So the key results might be increase app store ratings from three to three and a half, or reduce the bounce rates or dwell time on our website page to do with the app from X to Y. So really, really clear. And then that enables these decentralized decisions, because then if the leaders can articulate and set these clear objectives, Mm. then the teams know what to do. And many leaders really do struggle with that. So, you know, that's one thing that I think is one of the most important places to start. I think in terms of organizational design, there certainly are implications, but it doesn't really doesn't have to mean a full on restructure. So some of the more successful companies you can see they keep their functional verticals let's say so so the actual reporting line of all the individuals is you know you've got marcoms and you've got social media and you've got websites and you've got content but then you pull together these cross-functional teams who pull a person from each of those verticals into a horizontal team and they're the ones who work together daily to deliver to the team goals and those agile principles so whilst it is a big shift i would really actually guard against trying to do a massive organizational redesign and Mm. implement agile at the same time i think it's it's very difficult to get that right and you don't need to you know you can you can do start small and and keep your functional lines the same yeah and i guess the um the clarity of the goals the understanding of the customer the understanding of what you're trying to achieve as long as people are clear about that then hopefully the departmental Chinese walls that exist within an organization shouldn't get in the way. I mean, I guess there is still in some organizations a bit of a cultural barrier to get through, though, to to lead to that, because people are still quite parochial sometimes about if they've got a point of view on something. And I'm thinking particularly around sort of regulated communications, for example, you know, you, you there are consequences of getting stuff wrong. And therefore, if you're empowering people to do it you're driven by a bit of energy and pace i guess people would worry about the risks associated with that so does does that come into it in terms of new ways of considering risk management in that kind of situation yeah very much so very much so and you know it's important to say definitely in regulated organi- industries and organizations uh, there will almost certainly still be governance committee, you know, committees and, and sign off hurdles that have to be gone through. And that's right and proper. You know, if it's some big, very important regulatory communication that has to be right, you have to give your legal team and your compliance team enough time to sign it off and to really think it through. So, you know, it's not to say you disband all this stuff and you get rid of all these committees and everything is done in an agile way. And I think when we were implementing it at Santander, I spent a long time talking to the head of compliance to try and work out how to allay some of her fears on this. And you you, you find a rhythm that's right for the organisation. So what we actually agreed there was she was very worried about her team being put under pressure in the short term to make decisions without them having time to think about it. So we agreed with her. We would always send something out two days before the the sign-off meeting so her team could really look at it and really consider it and then come to the sign-off meeting having thought it through with all their points that they needed to make. So yeah, 100%, I think it's you know, it's finding ways to manage the risk within the framework that the company is is happy with. That's really interesting. And and so... Uh, this might be a how long is a piece of string question, but I mean, 
if indeed such an organization exists nowadays, but if, if, if you had an organization who really, really doesn't do agile marketing and then they want to move to being completely aligned to agile, the principles aligned to the customer in that way, how long does it take to get an organization from A to B in that respect? Yeah, good, good question. Funnily enough, I, I was answering that question for one of my clients this morning who'd, who'd asked the same thing. My, it is a bit how long's a piece of string mm. because it depends on how committed they are and, and, and whether they really want to go all in or they want to do lots of pilots and testing. I mean, if you, if I had to, if you had to force me to say something, I'd say they would start to see the benefits and, and really move towards being agile between six months and a year, I would say, okay. maybe a bit longer. But I think companies that think they're going to start seeing results within a month or so, it's, it's, that's not realistic because it does take time. But I mean, you can, you can start to see some shifts. And, and that's another thing I would sort of recommend with companies where to start. I would really strongly recommend, you know, that they start small and start with something where you believe you might be able to see some quick wins fairly quickly. So maybe some things with fairly short cycle times, like not a mortgage, because that, you know, the cycle time of a mortgage <laughs> is a long time. So yeah. maybe, you know, I know I keep referring back to financial services, but there's the sort of same parallels yeah. in each industry. So really think through how can we start small, stand up a squad, get some quick wins, demonstrate what works work, and work out all these things you have to work out. You know, how do we have to change performance management? How do we have to change career paths? How do we have to change our governance structures? You know, all those things take a long time in a bigger yeah. organization to work out what's the right answer. Mm, no, makes a ton of sense. I mean, it, it strikes me this is so many not even overlaps, more than overlaps, so many complete similarities between customer experience management and agile marketing and, and agile generally in terms of it's so customer centric, it's data driven. There are tools and techniques that you can throw into the mix. I mean, you mentioned journey mapping a little while ago. Obviously, that is a, a fantastic tool for stepping into the customer's shoes. So um, I think it's been really helpful to consider not only the similarities with customer experience, but we've talked a lot about how the customer will will benefit from it, but also what they'll see and feel. And um, I think I think it's it's been really clearly discussed. And I guess my my final question before a few quick fire ones is, how do you see this evolving, Rachel? I mean, it it, it feels to me, you know, as I say, I've, uh, I've been did, used to do this a lot a long time ago, and obviously we work with clients going through it. I mean, it feels like quite a quite a substantial evolution that's taken place already. I mean, how do you you think it might? change again or do you think it's just a case of bedding in are there other countries we can look to that are ahead of us in in the journey on this yeah so i i, I do think the uk are fairly not that well developed on this journey you know it, it's fairly new some industries seem to be further ahead than others you know for some reason banking seems to be quite far ahead in in terms of thinking about and developing this in the uk Definitely the US are leading the way, which is, is often the case. So a, a, a bunch of people from the US got together in 2012 and developed the original Agile Marketing Manifesto, which is nearly nearly 10 years ago now. And I think, I mean, from talking to them, I get the impression that they are further ahead in, in genuinely thinking through about this cross-functional teams business which I haven't really seen that much in the UK. I mean, they might have cross-functional marketing teams. So, you know, a, a creative and a content writer and an SEO expert and a website designer. But for me, where I think it's going to go, and I think the US are going, is, is to expand that out even further. So, you know, what about the product developments? You know, does that sit in the team? What about the customer servicing? You know, does that sit in the team? You have genuinely end-to-end 
customer focused teams and what about budgets i mean that's a big issue <laughs> you know right. how do you set budgets in an agile world how do you get finance involved you know to be more agile about how moving budgets around so for me that is where i think it will go it will move even further and where i think my us colleagues are, are seeing it go in the us and i think interestingly you know what's what's covid ever done for us the the shift of of digital and as massively shift to digital has massively been mm. accelerated by COVID. You know, some people who would never have considered doing things online before are now doing them. And actually, that's heaven for an agile marketer, as you alluded to earlier, you know, because of the data, because mm. of the massively improved feedback loops you get when people do things online. It's very, very difficult to really genuinely measure an end-to-end journey if the end of it's done face-to-face. Really yeah. difficult. Yeah. So actually, the more that journeys are done online, the better the data, the better the quality, and the more agile agile companies can be in responding to you know to, to the customer and taking their feedback on board to improve things okay so presumably underpinned all of that with highly sophisticated data analytics i mean we you know we've we talked we use the word insight quite a few times today and it, it's obviously a big part of of what we do in customer experience management but this taking it to the next level where yes of course there's still and as you've, you've quite clearly pointed out there's still a place for focus groups there's still a place for surveys but they're just one of many many data things and, and actually i did a an interview with claire sporton and uh, the episode before this and she talked about the customer exhaust you know the customer leaves a kind of an exhaust trail behind them as they step through your estate particularly in digital and being able to pull all of those gases together to create an understanding of where the customer's been and how they felt about things i thought was a really good way of of thinking about it so sounds like technology is um you know more more evolution in that as well yeah 100 percent. i think and I think marketers can find this pretty difficult because not all marketers are really that data minded and technically minded, but 100% the successful organizations will really embrace how to gather that data, but most importantly, mine it to get the insights out to, to drive those improvements. So yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. That's been really interesting. Thank you for, for explaining that. And I'm hoping that people have got a really clear understanding of when they hear the term agile marketing, what it is, what does it feel like to do? And you know, what are some of the, the cultural implications within the business, but also what the customer sort of sees and feels as well, which is, has been really good. Just as a, a final thing, and I, I ask everyone this, just a, a couple of quick fires, if I may, just to, to really sort of step into the, the customer experience realm finally. What do you think being truly customer-centric means? Rachel? So I guess I look at this slightly through a marketer's lens, but trying to look at almost the whole the whole angle. So I think being truly customer centric means identifying what customers want, then making the whole end to end journey as easy and timely as possible. And then when something goes wrong, surprise and delight customers with the way you fix it. And I think sort of slightly unpacking some of those things, you know, when I say what customers want, I think that's an important word because I don't think it's necessarily what customers say they need. You know, we're not great at defining that, you know, a faster horse and all that. But if we genuinely look at what people want, what will make their lives easier, that's really important. Mm. And then I deliberately said the customer journey should be timely. I don't believe it always has to be fast. You know, you don't always have to do everything really, really quickly, but it has to be timely. So, you know, if I order a brand new book that's just out by my favorite author, I want it today. But if I'm having an electric car charger fitted, I don't need it tomorrow. I need it before my electric car arrives, which Mm -hmm. might be in three months time as Mm -hmm. an example. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so that's what I think it means. 
Okay, fantastic. Great answer. And just to really bring that to life, I mean, can you think of an experience that you've had that really defines fantastic customer experience? This is a really interesting one. And I I guess, you know, traditionally, you might answer that by receiving customer service about something. But I, I have a slightly different example, which relates to all of the new tech we've we've had had to learn or are now using as a result of COVID. Mm. So for me, I'm going to pick Mentimeter, which is an incredible yeah. piece of tech. I know you yeah, use yeah. it at Pen, that is an online tool for those of you who haven't used haven't used it, where you can do fabulous things. You can do word clouds, you eat really easily, you can do surveys, you can do polls, you can do quizzes. The basic free version is brilliant. Mm. You can you can use it, you know, pretty much okay. And it is so intuitive. I anything I want to do on it, I haven't had to watch any tutorials, I haven't had to go on any lessons. It's there. I sign up for it. I, I had a I had a client meeting the other day where I suddenly realized 10 minutes before the meeting that I hadn't set something up properly and I needed to duplicate a Mentimeter thing. I'd never done it before. I was panicking, going, oh, my God, I've only got five, 10 minutes. I need to do this now. It was so easy. It took me 30 seconds. And I just think that is the, the future of, mm. you know, a fantastic customer experience. It's easy. It's simple. The free stuff is enough for now. And if I want to pay for it, great. I don't have to spend ages trying to work out how to use it. It's seamless. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing designed from the point of view of the customer. Brilliant example. And and how about the flip side of that? And I don't mind if you name the organization. It might be best not to, but a, a really stinking, terrible experience that you've had that kind of uh, goes the other way. Yeah, so <laughs> I mentioned electric car chargers in my previous answer. Yes, you um, did. That was front of mind. And, and I know that you've bought an electric car recently, so I thought we might get this. Yeah. We have, we have. I had a, we had a pretty stinking experience trying to get the electric car charger fitted, which is a pretty crucial part of having an electric car, you know. So, yeah, um, I mean, it was just this. It may to be try to be fair to the company. It may be worse because of COVID. But at the start, I felt like I had to be a qualified electrician because they were asking me to go through this survey and asking me all these questions. But I had no idea what they even meant. You know, have I got an isolation switch? Have I got this, that and the other? I haven't got a clue. You know, I, I don't know these things. So that bit was was terrible because I didn't know what I was doing. Then they duplicated my application twice. So then they said I had to go through this whole process again. Oh. Then eventually after ages we got this electrician out to fit this isolation switch which i didn't have apparently <laughs> but i needed which took ages and then they said great we're all set and so then i contacted them two weeks later because i hadn't heard anything and they said oh yes yes we need this extra bit of information from you so i was like well why didn't you tell me that two weeks ago so i gave them the extra information which took me 30 seconds and then they said oh yes we'll put you on the list now so we'll contact you in another two weeks because that's our sla to agree when we're going to fit the charger and so by that time my electric car had arrived <laughs> so i was not very happy mm-hmm. eventually now they did fit it and it was fine and you know and we got it about a week or so after we got the car but the whole experience just felt like the opposite of yeah not easy not timely exactly <laughs> 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 Great example. Great example. And finally, finally, I promise, what's one thing that you've learned throughout your career, which you very vividly brought to life today, that you could never have learned at a business school? It's quite a 
tricky one because you probably learn most things at business school. But the thing, the thing that I certainly, it took me a long time in my career to realize whether I should have realized it before or not, I don't know, was the real importance of share, having shared values with your organization and probably even more importantly, your boss. And I think I only realized that when I perhaps had a boss that I didn't share the values of. And it makes life incredibly difficult. So I, I think it's something to really think about. You know, you spend, you know, more than half your waking life at work, probably. So it's really a case of thinking through, do I share the values of this organization? And if if I'm really struggling with my boss, is it because we don't share the values? And that's quite tricky to do something about other than change your boss. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's uh, something that took me quite a long time to learn. But I, I certainly focus and really think about it now. Mm, no, that's a great answer. Thank you for that. Well, Rachel, it's been great. Thank you for giving up so much time. And um, yeah, I think we've had a really good rummage around everything to do with agile marketing and drawing out a whole load of parallels with customer experience, really. So so thank you very much indeed. Really enjoyable. And I hope our listeners get something uh, not only useful, but interesting out of it. So thanks a lot. And um, I'll see you again soon. Thanks for having me on, Neil. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Great stuff. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.